The one who talks a lot before? No, no I, I do too. So I will keep an eye on that red clock back there. Um, no, but uh, this is a first for me, not speaking, but uh, actually preaching into a, um, a sermon series in the middle with somebody who already is, you know, set context. I've always, when I've come up and speak before, just whatever the Lord put on my heart, something that I was passionate about, something that was going on. So this is a pretty cool thing to get challenged to speak already in a, a topic that's going on. Um, so if, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we're Pastor John's been walking us through uh, Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon of the Mount. Um, I, I have to start to say, when I was studying and reading and looking at all the different things, I, I was one of the people in that group that, this passage is, we just, we don't interpret it correctly. It's misquoted a lot of times. Um, being, being had served a little bit of time in the military and knowing a lot of military people, I have a lot of military in my family, like, I used to look at this passage as wimpy Christians. You know, we don't battle back. We don't fight back. We turn the other cheek. That's, it's not exactly what it's saying. Um, so I, it was really enlightening eye-opening. I really enjoyed digging into it. So my goal today, and it's a little different, like I said, when I come up and I speak about something that I picked out, I usually end up focusing on my points um, and the application because I, I'm, I was passionate about that topic. Um, really cool about this is I just found myself being grabbed into really trying to understand the actual text. Um, and we, we say that in school, you got to what, what's the person mean as they're writing it? And we say that, but I just, coming in the middle of it, it was just like, wow, I was really drawn into um, how much I didn't know about this piece um, and how much I thought I did. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, if not, there's one underneath you, um, hopefully. Um, if not, I'm sure your neighbor has one underneath them. But Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 38. Some of you, most of you probably have heard this. Um, but hopefully my goal, like I said, is to really uh, draw out the context today. And hopefully that, that's what, if I, if I don't elaborate my point so much today or pound the application, that's not my goal today. My goal today is actually to teach the, the context today. And I, I do have some points and I do have some application, but hopefully we can draw off it ourselves. Well, because I think in the whole previous few weeks and this week as well, I think it's going to click a little more. At least it did for me. So hopefully I can, I can help you with that as well. But before I get going, let me, let me just pray for us and, and ask God's blessing on this. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this day, God. And I, I just pray that you just uh, be with us, quiet our, our minds now about all the outside noise and other things going on and what's for lunch. And uh, just all the white noise outside in our lives. Just give us a peace today as we sit here. Uh, let it be your words, not mine, that we, we hear today, Lord, and, and just allow us to listen to your words and, and change. Leave this building different than when we walked in it, Lord, even if it's one little nugget of truth, of your truth, maybe something we didn't know or something that strikes us different. So allow us to have that today as we walk away. Just be with us as we listen and just quiet our minds and our hearts. 
and let your word reign true. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So, verse 38, Matthew chapter 5. You heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. And if anyone says, or anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who will persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For it is love. If you love those who love you, then what reward do you have? Do not have even tax collectors do the same. And if you, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And like I said before, like it, it, that, con- that setting the context is everything in this, in this scripture as we look at it. This is like one of the most commonly misinterpreted passages of Scripture because the tendency is for people to take the passage out of its context and determine what it means. In some circles, the thought of these verses is used to promote pacifism, objection to military service, lawlessness, anarchy. The Christians should be weak doormats. And a host of other different thoughts. There's even, as I was studying, I wasn't familiar with this. I don't Maybe I should have. Maybe it's something that I didn't do in high school. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, Tolstoy's, uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace. His whole thought of that book comes from the idea of the misinterpretation of this passage. I didn't know that. The result of what he was advocating, the elimination of police and military and other forms of authority was as a path to a utopian society. And he believed that even crime should not be punished. Based on the partial quote of Jesus, resist not evil. I I didn't realize that sometimes it it has a really deep effect when we take something out of the context or just a piece and we twist it to what we want it to mean or say. And like I said, we have to set the context or we won't understand the true message. I've read this passage before and I just didn't get it. Um, so the, the context for me, the way I'm going to uh, say it to you is, this is a contrast of true righteousness with self-righteousness is what we're looking at today. How did the speaker write or understand his own words? And how would the original audience would have understand these words? So this was a specific audience that Jesus had he was talking to the Jews. See, my mind went immediately as I was studying this, and you're, you're going to see because I'm going to quote some pieces of this. I thought it was anti-violence, anti-aggression, anti-military. It's not that. As I started to understand it, 
and I, I read it from somebody else, Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount maybe two hours. We definitely don't have all that. I would imagine we don't have all that written down. Two hours. It was a speech that he was talking to the Jews. And he was addressing societal issues. My mind immediately only went one place that I could even remotely relate to what they could have possibly been listening to. And that was the, I have a dream speech. I didn't want to go there because of the racial undertones and things like that, but Martin Luther King was doing the exact same thing. Though he was handling a different topic, that's what he was doing. He was challenging societal injustice. He was challenging us as a people group to think about something differently than what was the norm back then. And that's what Jesus is doing right here. So I'm going to point out a couple of the things in the, t- in the text that we, when we read, we don't actually see as a societal, or I didn't see, as a societal injustice. What Christ taught did not contradict the law, nor the epistles. The law was not some evil entity that the disciples, for the disciples, but it was truly the Word of God. We don't always understand the law. Those books in the Bible, I kind of used to like pass by because uh, they're hard to understand. They just are. But these people would have had it, and this would have been the main thing that they even read most times. So they understood where he was going with this. And the law is as pure as the person who gave it. Think about that as well. Christ did not come to destroy or put down or devastate the law, but to fill it, properly interpret it. The law of Moses wasn't given to mankind, but it was given to Israel. The covenant of Noah was given to all mankind, though. It's only when we remember that the speaker and the audience were Jews, and that Christ was addressing the hot topic issues of the day. The controversies, including the Old Testament law, and in the light of that current, in the current circumstances that they were all facing. That sermon falls in line not only with the Old Testament, but the New Testament epistles as well. Like I said, my mind immediately went to Dr. King, and Jesus was doing the same thing. And the example that he gives the people of that time is when Israel was under Roman occupancy. And it wasn't uncommon for a Roman soldier to be going somewhere and to be going maybe from one post to somewhere else and he'd have a lot of stuff. He'd have a lot of things to carry. And you know what he could just do? He could just see you standing there and say, you're going to come with me. You're going to carry my stuff and you're going to go with me where I'm going. You're going to go at one mile with me and you're going to carry my stuff. That was normal. I mean, well, let's think about this. You're a Jew. You could be working on a farm or harvest or, you, you know, these people worked hard. They had stuff to do. And they could be on their way to the market or something and all of a sudden a Roman soldier just grab them up and just say, you're doing my work now. A thousand paces is what equaled one mile. It's kind of what somebody was saying, to get that in your mind. When Christ spoke of going two miles, he was talking about the voluntarily going beyond the requirement 
of the Roman law. Yet Christ does not say as many miles as they want. He does set a boundary there. Go one more mile. Now, you're all probably going to laugh when I say this. Has anybody ever been to Chick-fil-A? See, I knew it was coming. All right, so I was a manager for Chick-fil-A. Maybe you didn't know that part. My wife runs a Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is a Christian organization. They get a lot of good press for that and a lot of bad press for that. But they have this thing that, in my mind, and it is biased, that their service is second to none. And I actually sat in a training under Dan Cathy, which is Truett's son, the owner and maker of Chick-fil-A, and learned what that was about. And they call it second mile service. They do pull it from this. So the idea of going above and beyond the norm. So think of that in a restaurant. Well, or sorry, think about that in a fast food. You go to McDonald's. Does anybody welcome you or, or thank you for or say my pleasure to serve you? No. Do they come and take your food or trash when you're done? They don't. Most fast food doesn't do that. Chick-fil-A does. They come and they refill your beverage. Not drink, it's a beverage. Um, the language is different. The idea is different. I teach it when I talk to my, my employees in the bank. I call it color language. Just don't say, yep, okay, sure, I'll be happy. You know, you want to add something. I, my pleasure. I'd be happy to serve you. It's going the extra mile. But catch that, though. Jesus did put a boundary on it. He didn't say, go as many as they want you to. It's not be a doormat. It's not get bullied or pushed around. But the point is that the people standing there listening to Jesus, probably, I would imagine, they complained about this issue. The fact that they could just get snatched up at at a moment's notice and be told, this is now your new duty for the next mile. You're going this way with me. You're going to carry my stuff. It was control. It was being put down. It was being enslaved, so to speak, I guess, right? It was that they were thought of lesser because of the type of people they were. So we do have a reference to that with the slavery that we handled back in Martin Luther King's time. That's what Jesus was attacking or challenging But he was challenging his people to have the right attitude about it. Not to be one of complaining, but not to be one as wimpy either. It was, okay, they they want us to give them a mile. We're going to give them two. We're going to give them two. We're not going to give them everything, but we're going to give them two. And we're going to do it with the right attitude. We're going to give them one of graciousness, servanthood, being second. There's a, a theme in there, second mile. And you'll see that when I get into the points. So he encourages us to offer our volunteering, but at a general or generous and reasonable boundaries. Let's look in the second piece of this. It's also interesting to note that the understanding that the Jews would have had regarding the Old Testament command, an eye for an eye. Jews in the first century probably understood this command, an eye for an eye shows that God was not commanding revenge. My mind goes that way. Right? Somebody punches you, punch them back. No, that's not what this is saying. Somebody harms you, you, you know, okay, do it back. No, it, it, this is giving them 
they would have understood it's not condemning revenge, it's controlling and limiting it. Retribution and punishment must be equal with the crime. Ancient Jews, um, the Jews had a source um, called the Mishnah, and it shows that the Jews did not understand an eye for eye, literally. Um, Here's a quote from it. If anyone wounds his fellow, he becomes liable to compensate the injured party for five different aspects of the injury. Damage, pain, healing, loss of time of work, and insult. Insult's interesting. We, we see that in this passage as well. The note that um, the Jews were required to compensate those they insulted, or that, yeah, they insulted. This is a this is a challenge to his own people. Um, if they insult somebody, or they're insulted, or Jew to Jew, this is a challenge that sometimes it's, it's not about you and make improving your point. I'll let that sink in for a second. It's not about always being um, right and improving your point. They would have, when they heard eye for eye, they would have translated it to litigation and compensation. In ancient Jewish culture, a slap in the face was considered the prime example of a great insult. You ever see a movie, some kind of duel, right? They take that glove and they kind of whap you in the face. That's what that is. That's a form of an insult. I also saw that a backhanded slap is a form of an insulted way to actually physically assault somebody. It's actually not a powerful shot. It's the fact that they could hit you with a weak slap was more insultive. Uh, if that's a word, insulted. <laughs> Just made it up if it's not. But that was the point that they were, were getting across. When Christ is talking about turning the other cheek, he's addressing the issue of self-defense in general, kind of maybe a national policy, but he's addressing the debate of the day. Again, this is another issue that they had because they were insulted, they could have been treated differently. The, the walking the extra mile, that's another difference that they were given just because of who they were. When he's addressing this, namely the eye for eye, he's commanding um, the, I'm sorry, he's commanding the apply to being insulted. Christ made it very clear to the individual believers who are assaulted for his kingdom, they must bear it. It's not about them. They must bear it. They're being insulted because they're Jew and they're God's chosen people. They need to bear it. It's not about getting retribution or litigation or being paid for their, their, the infraction that happened to them. Christ made it very clear that they must bear it. Not availing others for all of their rights may provide opportunities for them to be in a... I'm sorry, to be an example and not to exploit the others. The Christians were more concerned with doing, the Christians of that time were, he's challenging them to be more concerned with doing right before God than getting ahead or getting even. That's the point here. We're not out to get all the glory we can, but to glorify God. That's what we say. That's where he was trying to get them to think of. So the context, it's not about being a doormat, a wimpy Christian, turn the other cheeks so somebody could smack that as well. It's actually how things were done back then. It's things that oppressed 
that type of people. I didn't know that. It was, it was really cool to, to start to really glean that actual things that were going on at that time. Christ demands his, follow, his fellow followers to operate under a different operating system. This is where we need to think about this for us, folks. Christ demands the followers to operate under a different society, societal operating system of the day that they were living in at that moment. Different way of thinking, a different set of values, and a different lifestyle. We must be willing to be different and sometimes even radical. Even radical in the eyes of the world. right? Because if we follow Christ, that's going to be radical. If we do, if we actually live up to Christ's teaching, that is going to be different in the ways of the world, in the world's eyes. That's going to be radical. We must be willing to be... I'm sorry... Being a disciple of Christ means operating our minds with a different program than most society. Motivated by our relationship with Christ. That's what we draw it from. We need to be motivated because of our relationship with Christ. Think of the world. They're motivated by what? Self-gain. Self-worth. You know, being all about them. Christ sets a different standard. We have to follow that. First point, it's a mindset. We see it in verses 38 through 42. And yes, I'm stealing it from Chick-fil-A. A second mile mindset is what we need to accomplish this task. It's the second mile mentality. Verse 38 sets the tone for this whole matter at hand. It's litigation and compensation. Accepting the insults. You accept the insults. Because it might glean an opportunity. That's second mile mentality. The issue here is not self-defense, passiveness, non-confrontation. Christ encourages us to confront those who offend us. The issue is taking the insult, how we deal with that. This is like slavery being thought of less than or being dominated just because of the type of people that they were. I already quoted the, the Mishnah. Let me quote the Bible. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath. Giving people the benefit of the doubt. That's hard to do. Sometimes we need to do that. They might have wronged us. Maybe they were having a bad day. Maybe they were in a bad mood. But we just always take everything so personal. I do. <laughs> I will be admit, I'll admit that. That person meant to cut me off. They saw my car and knew it was me. No. They probably have no clue who I was. But we, we, get, we get revved up sometimes. We take it personal. Now, hear me when I say this, though. Christ is not talking about stabs to the chest, lethal kills, punches to the nose, Getting beat up. He's not talking about that. Play, pay close attention to the moderation that he's using in these words. Turn your cheek for a second slap, but it ends there. It's not stand there and get beat up. That's not what he's saying. It's not walk a thousand miles, it's walk two. There's a moderation in that. Jesus is saying, put up with the insult and even a moderate amount of abuse 
before taking someone to court. Why does he say that? Because we see court. We know how ugly it can get. Civil litigation. I was just on jury duty a little while ago. I didn't realize it, but criminal cases are faster than civil ones. I didn't understand that. People were in the, in the waiting room were explaining that. Normally, criminal cases are pretty cut and dry. If an action happened, do they have the evidence? It's pretty cut and dry to know, yay or nay, something happened. But civil cases, there's a lot more back and forth. And it's dirty, it's ugly. People whose names get dragged through the mud sometimes. And if it's happening from a Christian to a Gentile, a non-Christian, or happening between Christian brothers... That could drag God's name through the mud. That's not the point. I mean, that's, that's what he's calling us not to do. Avoid the litigation. Do not take the attitude of an opportunist ready to exploit every infraction that's done to you. See, the world's so happy. My dad used to always say that. The world's so happy. Oh, you bumped me. I'm going to sue you. Like, that's, that's the mentality. He's... Apparently, that was back then as well. Insult, insults happened a lot. People were offended because of their background or the people group that they were. Um, so he's calling them not to do that. There's an element of evil in the best of us, and there's an element of good in the worst of us. Again, giving people the benefit of the doubt. When you're looking for the good in others, it helps... You, it helps if you accentuate the positive and not fall into the trap of labeling others as worthless or good for nothing. Society does that. In the history of society, we've done that. We don't like something that's different from us. We label it. We put a worth to it. We value it. We put it in rank. Again, the main theme of this is the litigation that comes into play. Here's an example of the, the moderate phrasing. A person is wanting to sue another for a tunic. And Christ did use the example, he didn't use the example of a castle or someone with great wealth. Because that, that wouldn't have been the norm back then. This happened just everyday general people. So he used what would make sense, what would be normal. It would be a tunic, cloak. So he says, if someone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Again, don't give them everything you own, but give them something else. The Roman law and the ability for a Roman soldier to constrain any non-citizen to walk the Roman mile, carrying his supplies, Christ says, Go beyond and walk too. Again, this is attitude that he's telling them. Be gracious. Go beyond. What is required? I already said, note the moderation that he's saying. Give, give, let people have their space. Be generous, but don't, be, don't go to the extreme. There's still plenty of space for tough love. That's Christ's job, not ours. Not being exploited, know the boundaries. That's the mindset of a second mile mindset. Okay, that's what we're drawing out from the text. That's that mindset that we should have. 
what does it look like? You'll notice the theme, second mile servant. What does it mean really to serve the second mile? Go that extra distance. Look, we're moving into the next piece of this of the passage. And this is going to get even tougher. And I told Pastor John I, the other day, I was like, thanks for the easy, easy one. Because the last couple of weeks, he's got to preach on some really tough topics that came down through the Sermon on the Mount. Adultery, divorce, that is not easy. I'm really glad he didn't give me that. So I wasn't being sarcastic. Thanks for the easy one. This is not easy, though. But it is easier than the other topics that we had. But they do work together. And I'll pull on that near the end here. Love your enemies. We all have enemies, right? When I say this, we're all going to think we have enemies. Everyone faces enemies sooner or later. No one faced more than the late Dr. Martin Luther King. He had a lot of enemies. People wanted to see him dead. And they got their way. People wanted to see, that saw him as a threat. They cherished their misguided way of societal living. His pure presence did that. What he stood for. The way of life that he was challenging. He became such a target of racism, bigotry, and political slander, especially in the South. So who better to explain what it means to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us than Martin Luther King? So I found some of his sermons. I didn't know there was videos. I didn't see those come up, but I found some excerpts. Um, 1957, he preached a sermon entitled, Loving Your Enemies. Let me share a couple thoughts from it. How do you know, how do you go about living, loving your enemies? That's the question. First, he says, analyze yourself. Face it, some people will be turned away or turned off just by the way you talk. Just by the way you walk. Just by the way you fix your hair. You can't please everybody. People will hate you because you're a nerd or because you're suave. I guess that's a word back then they used. They'll resent you even if you're stupid or exceptionally bright. Sometimes you just can't win. It's not your fault. Yet knowing this, that there's something about us that sets people off can help us not get defensive. That second mile mindset there again. Second thought he gives us is look for the good in your enemy. As Mr. Rogers, wow, that's a blast from the past, used to say, have you ever noticed that very same people who are bad sometimes are the very same people that are good sometimes? Now I see the trolley in my mind now. What goes around comes around. It's kind of one of our philosophy ideas out there. That fits with this. Dr. King puts it, one of his final thoughts is, when you come to this point that you look into the face of every man so deep down within, you see what religion calls the image of God. You begin to love him in spite of everything else. So find the center of goodness and place your attention there and you will take a new attitude. When the opportunity, here's the application piece, folks, from Dr. King. When, you, when the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that's the time that you don't do it. That's grace. You have them, 
Yeah, you can put your foot right down on his neck, go for the kill shot, and you don't do it. That's grace. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after which is good for one another and for all people. Matthew 5.43, where we're at, says, You heard it say, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Here's another saying. Jesus quotes that his people that he's talking to, they would have known this. But they would have heard it differently. They would have remembered half of this statement. It comes from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the son, sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the Jews knew that they were supposed to love their neighbors. They got that piece. And for us Christians, we know what that means. We've we got to love other Christians. Well, that's pretty easy, right? It should be anyways. But Leviticus says nothing about hating your enemies. Because it only says love your neighbor and not your enemy. They took it to mean that they could hate their enemy. In fact, they took it to mean that you should hate your enemy. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He gives us another one, doesn't he? Very next verse, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now they got the full picture. So who's our enemy? Who's your enemy? What does he look like? You got a picture? You got it there? Do you have somebody in your mind? When you're working out, does it give you that little extra oomph? person at work that irritates you? The, um, the, the person at school that's making fun of you, they give you a little gusto when you hit that punching bag as you're working out. That's what the world says we use. We need to see the big picture. We need to have that mindset. We need to take it to the next step. That's what the second mile servant would do. Last week when Pastor John was talking about divorce, I remembered a conversation a really good long time ago, but it's always stuck in my mind. When I was at Word of Life Bible Institute, almost 20 years ago, <laughs> um, my first year in college, we were having a conversation with uh, my mentor at the time, one of the, one of the uh, deans of men. There was a bunch of us, and he was talking about purity and dating. That is a hot topic, societal issue when you've got a group of college kids. Dating, purity, everything. That's just one of those major conversations that everybody's ears perk up. And I'll never forget what he said to us. He made a statement giving us this perspective. This is what I hope we can, we can walk away with today. He said, you should treat the girl that you're dating like another man's wife, because she is, until you marry her. That's a perspective. I know that it has to do with purity and relationship, but think of that this way. Does that fit here? I think it does. To be a second mile servant, it's to treat your enemy as your brother or sister in Christ. Because they could be. And they're God's children. They're just lost right now. You get that? They could be people. They could be our 
brother and sister in Christ. It's like that's somebody else's wife until you put a ring on it. Your enemy can be your brother and sister. We don't know what God has in store. Don't be the reason that they never find their way back. Be the light that shows them the way home. That's the mental, That's the second mile servant. So we have the second mile mentality and we have being a second mile servant. Well, how, why can we do that? Because we have a second mile savior, folks. It was demonstrated to us. And now he's sitting there telling the people of his time how to handle these issues. The way he would do it. And we, we know the outcome. We know how he did it. Even though none of, none of us can be perfect, in verse 48, that's what he calls us to be. Even though none of us can be perfect, that still should be our aim. That still should be our intent. Though we'll ne- not all, every arrow hits the target, that's still the intent. That's what we need to strive for. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Being perfect, it's difficult. This is a difficult verse of the, the passage. Jesus concludes this difficult passage. And it sounds like he's demanding us to be sinless. He's not. It sounds like he's raising the bar so impossibly high that it requires a perfect jump to get it. It sounds like there's no hope. No hope of grace. No hope meeting the impossible standards Jesus sets in this passage. It sounds like he's trapping us in a corner for which there's no escape. But if that's true, that does not fit his mission to save us. So if somebody serves you that line, when you talk to them, I can't do that. I had that same defense when it was presented to me. I was so caught up in my sin, I was like, when I was asked if I was ready to, to give my life to Christ, if there was anything stopping me from trusting, you know, that perfect line, I've used that before. Um, there was. I had a bunch of junk in my life. And I didn't know how to deal with it. That's not, that doesn't fit. See, we have to be, we have to be careful we have to be careful where sometimes where the world, and I've said this in other sermons, where the world thinks we're uppity or goody two-shoes or because they look at us as we're, we're perfect or better than them. They can't get there. So why bother? Did you ever, <laughs> did you ever go into your house and look at like it was a disaster and you feel overwhelmed? There's just too much to clean up? Maybe after a party or something like when it just gets like that, it shuts me down. That's where, that's where some people in the world might be thinking. They look at our lives and all they see is everything's so great for us. We all know that's not true. We all know that's not true. But from the outside looking in, that might be what we present. Jesus walked the extra mile as he carried the cross for you and me. It's that simple, but we need to keep in perspective. It's not about us. It's not about us. I am second. I like that movement. 
You ever see the wristbands or the testimonies? Those are really cool. Of people sharing some of the really hardships that they went through. And it was a reminder that they, no matter what they went through, it's not about them. And they, they say, I am second. Jesus carried a Roman soldier's baggage, or baggage. He carried the baggage. He also carried ours. All the way down with that cross on his back. That's the second mile Savior. So let's go the extra mile to perfection. That's the application piece. Verse 48. We need to face the enemy. The title of the sermon, I know the kids were asking me about that for their papers. They copied my homework. They cheated. No. Engage your enemy. I didn't make that title. Pastor John gave that to me. Engage your enemy. How do, how do we engage an enemy? I asked you, do you know who it is? Do you have that picture in your, your mind of who, who's your enemy? If we're going to go the extra mile, it would be perfect, extra mile towards perfection, we need to face our enemy. We need to engage him, but we need to engage the real one. To engage our enemy, we need to know who he is. And this is where we find him. Doubt, hopelessness, emptiness. The hole that is so empty, so big, no matter what you try to put in it and fill it up, it doesn't work. It's never enough. And then, bam, you're on the bottom. I hit rock bottom, and I think at some point everybody gets there in their own way. The world is still under that fog of the lie, the great lie. There's where we see our enemy. That cloud that goes all the way back to the beginning. And we see that in Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals and the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may not eat from the fruit of the trees, or we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, We must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. And there's that serpent. You will not certainly die, he says. For God knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's that mindset, folks. There's really not a heaven after this earth. Come on. There's nothing there after you die. Really? Do we really know that? There's not heaven. There was a big bang. I hope you understand I'm being sarcastic right now. There's no God we involved from a little organism thing. Folks, there's a real problem going on. And it's starting to show its face. And the youth of today are really getting wrapped up into it. And this is just an outcome of the enemy, but suicide is growing at an alarming rate. I was going to pull the figures, but I couldn't even really bring myself to do that. Eventually, with no hope, no reason to live, 
nothing to strive for after this world. Why bother? That's the why that a lot of people fall into. Just quit. Why struggle? This world is not perfect. It's not easy. And our life, just because we're Christians, is not either. But not everybody sees that. This is where taking the extra mile of perfection, it's to stand there and say, yeah, you know what? Life does suck. But when I made it about me, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. That's your opportunity. And we have to take it. We have to engage the enemy. Because it's snatching people very quickly. And it's engaging us. We just don't know it. Hope, doubt, fear. We have the answer. And we just have to have the strength to take it on. We have to fight back. The right way, of course. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, thank you so much for this day, God. Thank you that your word is true. And though it's not easy, and the burden may be hard sometimes, you give us the strength. It's not about us. You're a good, good father. It's you who you are. We sang that song. And when things get down and the, the sky is dark and life looks bleak, we have that hope that it doesn't end here. And that's what can get us through. But to somebody who is our enemy, who is your enemy really, who doesn't know you as a good father, give us the strength to show them This is where we can really take the world and flip the thought of societal mentality on its head. Go the second mile. Love our enemies. Because the world is taught to hate the enemies. Kill it with kindness. Give us the strength to do it. Give us your words. Let us go out and meet it head on. Take the fight to it, not us. We ask for this strength in Jesus' name. Amen.